um, what I'm going to talk about today is the ethics of AI, of course, as we all have been, um, but from a political economy approach. Uh, so uh, this thinking about uh, the ethics of AI um, as a political economist um, is interesting and, and challenging in, in many ways. Um, not least because it raises the question of well, what is political economy? So when we say that, what do we mean? Well, there are many, many answers. And for me, I always say political economy is a really big tent. So this is one of the reasons I really enjoy being a political economist. It facilitates um, asking really big questions, um, which is useful when we think about things like um, the emergence of, of AI, uh, but also using a variety of methodologies, a um, variety of uh, analytic tools and techniques, different kinds of research strategies, and so forth. Um, so it's a fun domain to, to operate in. Uh, but it still has to be put to use, particularly in contexts like this, when we want to be able to contribute to a conversation, um, in this case around AI. Um, and so I have to make some choices in terms of the particular uh, type of political economy, um, questions, uh, and approaches I'll, I'll deploy. Uh, and so much of what's going to follow um, is going to be one slice, so one uh, sort of uh, take on political economy um, that I'm trying to use uh, to maybe address uh, some of these questions. Okay, so one way to think about political economy is the study of societal transformation. Um, certainly, uh, we can think about this in the context of the rise of modern capitalism, um, and that's not at all grandiose in the sense that um, uh, the individuals that we tend to refer to as the classical political economists, um, Ricardo, Smith, Marx, um, people who came before, Montesquieu, Mandeville, uh, and so forth, um, all the work that they did sought to both explain, on one hand, um, the kind of societal transformations uh, that were taking place um, really from the 16th century onwards, uh, as well as, and I think this is very important, um, not only explaining what was taking place, or trying to explain these changes that were taking place, but they also in many ways um, legitimized some of these changes as well, right, by providing new kinds of ideas, um, and especially new moral justifications, um, and this is crucial, um, for the transformations that were taking place under, under modern capitalism. Uh, and again, if we think about the rise of capitalism as a big change in, amongst other things, uh, societal relations, um, the kinds of reciprocities um, that existed in the pre-modern age uh, were being broken apart and reformed into new kinds of reciprocities, um, new modes of exchange, uh, primarily under markets, uh, under mo modern capitalism, uh, and of course, not just in Europe, uh, but around the world. Okay. So, uh, so with that sort of take on, uh, on political economy and, and what it is and what it can do for us, um, especially in terms of explaining and again, providing justifications, I think, this, I think both sides of this coin are, are very, very important, um, especially if we think about the kinds of legitimation that goes with contemporary markets, for example, um, and as I'll, I'll suggest and many others have noted today, um, uh, with the development of, of, of artificial intelligence as well and what it may do in uh, markets and society. Um, Okay, so breaking that down just a little bit further, uh, we can think about political economy within this context as a study of a number of things, but perhaps most crucially power relations. Uh, so again, going back to what I described as this transformation in uh, social relations uh, and governance. Uh, much of what the, the early political economists, um, many of whom I should have noted are, I mean, the term political economy emerged uh, really from a group of people that initially we thought about as moral philosophers, um, uh, including the list of people I, I mentioned at the very beginning, uh, but also questions of governance. I mean, really what uh, many uh, were trying to explain was the changing role of the state, for example, um, 
much of the work that they did legitimized um, different roles um, for the sovereign, so taming the Leviathan and taming the sovereign. Uh, this draws on uh, people like Albert Hirschman's work um, in the Passions and the Interest in showing how uh, the work of many of these moral philosophers turned classical political economists um, instituted new ideas like, like rational self-interest. Uh, for example, as a means not only of explaining change, but also legitimizing uh, the emergence of markets, um, uh, new kinds of institutions like private property, um, and so forth. So within this context, uh, what can we take um, to think about AI? Well, I'm going to focus a little bit more narrowly um, today on institutions. And by institutions, I mean rules, norms, and beliefs. Uh, and in particular, of course, moral beliefs. Um, so turning from that, we can start to think about, well, what are the moral foundations of political economy that we might usefully bring to bear uh, to think about the questions that emerge um, with the rise of AI? Uh, well, one place that's always a little bit fun to begin um, are think is thinking about the paradoxes of capitalism. Uh, and here we can think about the work of Bernard Mandeville. Um, and a kind of key question, which of course is always with us in, when we think of contemporary, when we try to understand uh, uh, contemporary capitalism, and that question is, is greed good? I would ask people for the answer, um, but we get answers from different people, right? So, uh, for example, this guy, right? So, Gordon Gecko, Wall Street, right? Greed is good, right? It's always funny to me that Wall Street came out in 1987, a kind of pivotal moment in the real Wall Street. Um, and these ideas recur, right? So, not just in these periods of excesses, uh, like in the 1980s in the United States, uh, but of course, Gecko got rebooted a few years ago with The Wolf of Wall Street, right? Um, played by our friend here, um, always having a lot of fun. Um, but really, this question of whether greed is good, uh, to go back to Mandeville, um, is famously and maybe infamously in some respects, certainly at the time when it came out, uh, encapsulated um, in his fable of the bees, uh, which I'll read because I love reading Old English. Um, and the idea of the fable of the bees really was um, uh, taken as a reconstitution of um, uh, sets of beliefs and actions in society that previously were considered to be vices. What Mandeville and others sought to do was to invert what previously were thought about as vices to be thought about as societal goods. Uh, so here, for example, at the very beginning of The Fable of Bees, he writes, a spacious hive well stocked with bees that lived in luxury and ease, and yet, yet as famed for law and arms as yielding large and early swarms, was counted the great nursery of sciences and industry. No bees had better government, more fickleness or less content. They were not slaves to tyranny, nor ruled by wild democracy, but kings that could not be wrong because their power excuse me, was, circumscri was circumscribed by laws. So a lot happening here where Mandeville really is talking about the role of the state, um, the rise of new uh, institutional mechanisms of decision making, so what we would think about today, for example, as democracy, uh, taming of the sovereign, uh, a reconstitution um, of what we think about as Leviathan, uh, the emergences of what is today common, thinking about science and industry, but at this time in 1732 was really very new, right? Um, uh, and really thinking about um, fundamentally um, new kinds of, uh, new tools of governance, um, for example, uh, the role, or reconstitutions of uh, tools of governance, for example, the role of law. So we might turn from this to newer paradoxes of capitalism. Um, and here we go to another, much more modern, um, but also to consider political economist Milton Friedman, uh, who infamously, again, perhaps has written, uh, there's only one and, one and only one social responsibility of business to use its resources uh, and engage in activities designed to increase its profits. Again, we see this as a legitimation, or this has been taken as a legitimation of the idea that perhaps greed is good. 
right? That business, and this is crucial uh, when thinking about the moral underpinnings of these kinds of claims, uh, is not that the pursuit of private profits by business or the pursuit of self-interest by an individual um, is bad, but in fact, it generates a societal good. And again, to go back to the fable of the bees, the idea of bees um, sort of working together into a, in their collective um, uh, to produce uh, bigger outcomes. Uh, it's worth noting that Friedman does add, but so long as it stays within the rules of the game. Uh, and these rules of the game, again, um, we'll think about uh, this afternoon, um, I would, uh, uh, or we'll try to think about this afternoon in terms of institutions. Okay, so what implication, implications, excuse me, does this have, or might this have for the development of AI? Well, let's turn for a moment um, to thinking about state and market, um, because Friedman suggests that, well, it's about private profit. Uh, private profit. Um, of course, when we think about AI, we tend to primarily think about cutting edge developments uh, in artificial intelligence as taking place within the context of private firms, uh, especially um, in uh, North American, and perhaps a slightly lesser degree, uh, European and Japanese contexts. Um, but perhaps um, we may think about that a little bit more broadly um, when we look at other parts of uh, the world, um, as I'll uh, hint in a few moments. Uh, so private firms certainly are key players uh, in the development of AI, but what about the state? Um, I'm going to suggest the, the following. So does the state only play a regulatory, regulatory role, um, uh, sort of putting in place uh, rules of the game, as Friedman noted? And even when we've talked about government um, today, much of it has been turned, put in terms of policy and regulation. So how can, with an idea, I would suggest a sort of implicit idea, um, that the state stands outside of these developments um, in AI. So developments in AI are taking place in firms, so they're taking place in the market, uh, and the state really stands outside, and if anything, it sort of seeks to regulate the market from the outside. Um, and this is, um, I would suggest, um, uh, uh, a reflection of a kind of, um, uh, a well-held view or broadly-held view um, of state and market as quite separate, right? So you have the market, so this is the arena of uh, firms, this is the arena of individual self-interest, the arena of transactions on one side, um, and we have the state on the other side, which sometimes seeks to regulate or to intervene, uh, of course, in common parlance. Um, so oftentimes state and market are posited um, as competing um, and separate uh, entities. Uh, and in many cases, they're competing separate entities, perhaps acting on society. What I want to suggest um, is that state and market rather are mutually reinforcing domains of power and authority for governing society. Uh, so rather than thinking about state and market as separate, we should think about them very much um, together in their role um, that they play in governing society. Now, I'll give some examples of this as we go forward. Uh, and so instead, we might reconstitute our view of state and market um, in thinking about ideas of embeddedness. Of course, these ideas of embeddedness I'm using here um, are probably most famously um, associated with the work of Karl Polanyi. Um, and here we can think about state and market as deeply embedded in society. And this has big implications, particularly when we turn to thinking about the moral implications of state and market actions. So what I'm going to suggest is that um, all state and market actions, all modes of operation, all attempts to govern, um, attempts to make profit um, by state actors, by market actors, are all mediated through, shaped by, and emerge from moral considerations and moral beliefs that are deeply embedded in the societies in which they operate. I'll try to give some examples of this um, as we go forward, um, as well as some ways as which, uh, through which we can think about this analytically uh, in terms of thinking about the development of AI. Uh, so, okay, so this approach is suggested the development of AI is, on one hand, driven by different economic and political forces, right? Um, and we don't think, want to think about these as entirely separate, economic purely um, in the context of market and political uh, purely in the context of the state, right? As we've noted, these are fundamentally uh, intertwined. 
Uh, and as I've suggested, in turn, these forces are shaped by different ethical considerations um, as well as moral imperatives um, and beliefs. All right. So having laid out um, a sort of big tent um, or sort of like um, a, a sort of high level um, framing for thinking about um, questions of political economy in the context of AI, um, how might we think about this in sort of more concrete terms? So here I'm going to try to offer um, a very brief sketch, um, and this is very much uh, reflecting early thinking um, in the context of artificial intelligence um, and the development of AI, um, but a brief sketch of an institutional approach to thinking about the moral embeddedness um, of AI. Okay, so I've sort of hinted, um, or I've sort of noted that, um, uh, or argued that uh, state and market should be considered to be embedded in society. And of course, societies vary both across place and time, right? So across countries, for example, uh, and certainly temporally um, in different time periods. So what I'd like to suggest is that in different country contexts, the development of AI um, today is framed through different moralized and um, political economic logics. So let me just sketch out three very brief examples um, that I'll chat about for maybe um, half a minute uh, each. Uh, so for instance, we might think about the development of AI in China. Uh, so when we think about AI in China, one of the first things that comes to mind is, of course, the social credit scoring system uh, that uh, China has been, putting in has been developing um, and putting in place over the course of the last couple of years. And so an immediate question that um, uh, rises in this context is first, uh, what is this all about? Is it about governance? Most people would sort of think, yes, very much so. And also the general view would be to see this in the context of um, governance by a um, non-democratic state, right? So a single party um, uh, state in, in China. And certainly the idea of the, the sort of political economic logic in China um, typically is one of very, being very top-down. But in fact, um, as uh, many who focus on China um, uh, would suggest, in fact, the way that chi governance in China works, um, far from being purely top-down, is in fact a very interesting intermixing of top-down and bottom-up. Uh, so what we find, for example, in the context of the development of social credit scoring uh, is that it hasn't been driven by Beijing or by um, sort of uh, leading party figures um, in the Communist Party, uh, but rather it emerges from uh, experiments and innovations that took place in the city, um, in city um, as well as provincial levels uh, of China. So many of these experiments began uh, through combinations of private firms um, as well as state-owned firms um, at the urban as well as the provincial levels uh, in China. Uh, and as is the case in many other domains of Chinese governance, um, the successes um, that emerged from some of these experiments filtered up towards Beijing, up in the party mechanism, and then were diffused back into additional experiments um, in other parts of the country. And then these experiments really then become supported through um, financial outlays, uh, through uh, political recognition of, um, of especially party members, um, especially at the political level um, that are involved um, at the provincial um, and urban scales and so forth. So it's this dynamic um, exchange between um, uh, the provinces um, and cities on one hand uh, and Beijing uh, and the central party on the other um, that serves to provide an explanation of what's taking place in this development of, of social credit scoring, again, from the perspective of governance. Uh, and so having these kinds of insights or thinking about um, how, what kinds of the, the political economic logics um, that guide uh, uh, these kinds of technological developments um, in a context like China provides important insights for thinking about um, the particular paths of development um, that artificial, um, that research in, in AI and development of AI uh, may actually take. Uh, 
uh, especially if we think about this comparatively. Uh, so of course we can think about the United States. So one logic certainly in China is certainly go governance, but also technological catch up. Um, so the Chinese premier um, announced last year that uh, he wants China to be the leader in AI by 2030. Uh, and many of the, um, much of the uh, sort of political and especially uh, economic uh, support um, that is now flowing towards um, AI research and the development of uh, capacities, technological um, capacities uh, in AI is very much fueled by uh, China's broader, the broader political economic logic in China um, of catch up um, with the West and in particular with the United States, generally as a global um, economic and political hegemon, but also as the recognized leader um, in um, artificial intelligence research. So again, we may ask these questions about the United States. So what sort of logics um, shape the development of AI in the US? So again, when we think about AI in the US, the first things that come to mind are Google, or firms. So Google, Facebook, um, uh, certainly um, at the, the lead, um, followed by others. So the questions maybe about Amazon and so forth. So we tend to think about the large um, uh, platform firms um, that are the dominant and most visible players um, in artificial intelligence in the US. And certainly that's not inaccurate. However, uh, we'd also want to think about the role of the state. Uh, again, much of the, the thinking of the role of the state in the US context tends to be about regulation. Uh, so we've had um, a couple mentions of some of the kinds of um, policy directives that have been put in place um, to try to regulate um, the development of AI uh, in the United States. But these really have come quite late. They're only really in the last couple of years. Um, and these include um, policy proposals or policy documents that were put out first by the Obama administration in 2016. Uh, and then there was more recently a statement by the Trump administration um, on artificial intelligence um, last year. Uh, and so the idea in the US, the kind of logic that people tend to think is that, well, you know, the market is forging ahead and the government, is the state is typically falling behind, trying to regulate um, uh, as best as it can um, a uh, rapidly changing uh, technology. But I would suggest that uh, a, a sort of view of um, uh, the US political economy, especially one that thinks about governance, uh, might offer a slightly different approach. We should think a little bit more closely, for example, about the interrelationships between many of these private firms uh, and the security apparatus in the United States, for instance, um, and ways in which the security apparatus, um, so the NSA and other branches um, of, the, um, uh, of security in the United States, um, have facilitated, engaged with, supported um, many of the, the developments uh, in artificial intelligence that we see uh, in many of the firms that I mentioned before, in ways that in fact may seem not unlike uh, what many people think about when they consider social credit scoring uh, in China. Finally, I'll turn to uh, one other context uh, very briefly, which is in India. Um, and here again, I want to focus on the, the idea of these political economic logics and the way in which they shape developments of arti in artificial intelligence. Uh, but I'd also like to emphasize the role of history. Um, again, to sort of uh, to, 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 to add weight to um, the perspective that I'm trying to offer uh, about the importance, importance excuse me, of embeddedness. Uh, so when we say that, when we talk about these political economic logics or when we talk about the role of moral beliefs and the way in which these are embedded in society, these all tend to have long historical or deep historical foundations. Uh, and in places like India, of course, this is no exception. So I'll give one brief example, which I hope will highlight this. Uh, and this is uh, Udder, which uh, many people may be familiar with, um, is uh, a new digital-based um, system, um, biometric-based system, um, in India that aims to uh, be able to identify uh, every Indian citizen um, through, uh, uh, through biometric data, um, so fingerprints, retinal scans, and so forth. 
So the purported logic um, of the other system is one of uh, welfare provision. So it's one of, that's, that's, it's, it's the way in which it's been um, sort of legitimized um, and the way in which it's been offered to Indian society is as a corrective to past corruption. Uh, so uh, in India, uh, there's a, a deep feeling um, sort of broadly held uh, across society um, that uh, state officials, especially at, uh, so government officials, especially at state um, and local levels, um, the assumption tends to be that they're deeply corrupt. Um, and much of this uh, sort of set of beliefs about state corruption um, go back to at least the 1970s um, uh, under when there are a variety of transformations took place uh, in Indian governance um, under um, then Prime Minister Indira Gandhi. Uh, and so as a corrective to this, um, the, the, the current government suggests that um, new modes of uh, use or new uses of digital technologies, um, new means of identifying, uh, for example, welfare recipients or identifying recipients of state benefits will remove all possibilities um, of corruption by local uh, government officials. Right? Um, so this is a technological solution that's being offered to a deeply held political and social problem. Again, so this moral imperative of addressing these issues of corruption uh, in the Indian context serves to uh, justify and legitimize uh, the implementation of a system that raises all the kinds of concerns that we've heard today. So questions about privacy, for example, uh, certainly, um, as, well as, um, uh, as well as concerns with how uh, this data um, that's being captured um, by over a billion Indians might be used for commercial purposes by yet unnamed firms, yet unnamed private actors. So again, we see how these uh, local political economic logics um, shape the development um, of artificial intelligence in this context. Uh, and much of the research and many of the new startups um, that are um, operating in this space uh, in India are, are explicitly geared towards um, the benefits that can be accrued from participating in the system. So it's playing a fundamental role, again, not unlike the social credit scoring in uh, system in China uh, in uh, serving as a, a hub, a sort of locus and a driver in many respects of the development of AI technological capabilities um, in India. Okay, so uh, I just want to turn for a moment um, to, to unpacking a little bit further um, uh, from an institutional perspective, um, so following on those three examples I just gave, uh, pack, unpacking a little bit further what I mean by um, uh, the moral and institutional uh, embeddedness of AI. So what does this mean in more concrete terms? Um, so I'll organize this in a, a couple of areas. So first in thinking about the development of AI, and I've, I've hinted at this quite a bit, um, it's crucial for us, of course, to think about the role of technological innovation. Uh, and within this, uh, the goals and objectives of actors that are engaged um, in AI research and development, uh, and how these goals and objectives vary across public and private sector organizations, for example, um, uh, university-based researchers and researchers uh, in other domains, um, as well as, of course, across country contexts. Uh, crucial to this is also the imaginaries that um, the sort of imaginaries that animate um, researchers in these domains. So, what sort of future, what sort of possibilities do they imagine uh, machine learning um, uh, can accomplish? What kinds of goals um, uh, are possible? And what kinds of objectives do they have in mind? Uh, and crucially, in many ways, how are these informed by local cultural norms and beliefs? Uh, relatedly, we want to think about the array of organizations uh, that are involved in the development of artificial intelligence. So certainly firms, as we've heard a lot of um, today and also from me, but also think about public research labs of various sorts. 
Uh, and again, what kind of variation might we see in things like objectives, goals, um, incentives, and so forth um, across different kinds of organizations that are involved in the development of artificial intelligence? Uh, and then finally, and then sorry, third, uh, thinking about national political economies. So again, uh, going from these layers of embeddedness. So thinking about public and private sector organizations as embedded uh, in national political economies, um, where institutions, uh, institutions and institutional arrangements such as financial markets, labor markets, legal rules, um, including but not limited to intellectual property rights, become very important in shaping the particular directions um, that developments in AI might take. Uh, and then finally, thinking about the global political economy, right? So national political economies certainly do not stand uh, alone. We live in a globalized world. Um, so thinking about how this manifests in concrete terms, for example, through interfirm networks, as well as through other means, such as the development um, and deployment of global rules and norms. So how can we think about this a little bit visually? So if we think about artificial intelligence and the development of AI um, as nested um, or embedded um, in public and private sector organizations, this is where they take place. Um, and it's important for us never to forget that organizational context. Um, again, uh, those organizations are embedded uh, import in important ways in national level political economies, uh, which in turn are embedded in the global political economy. So we can think about this and sort of imagine this embeddedness um, very much in this way. Uh, and so the, question, the, the point here really is to suggest that institutional arrangements shape patterns of innovation. Right? So it's crucial for us to think about how institutional arrangements vary at these different levels um, and the kinds of implications uh, that they may have um, for the development of AI. Uh, and crucially, again, it's important for us to note uh, and always remember that many of these institutions, and I'm going to talk about a few of these institutions in a moment, are themselves the historical outcomes of various political, uh, uh, various political struggles um, in some of these uh, national political economies. Um, I'll give some examples of this in a moment. Um, okay, so, um, so, so here's a way in which we can think about this in a little bit more detail. So if we take the first two levels, so thinking about uh, the development of artificial intelligence um, in public and private sector organizations, uh, we might think about how this is shaped by a couple of institutional arrangements in a couple of domains. Uh, so finance, for example, uh, education and training. Um, so both of AI researchers, uh, but also of others in society as well. So for example, one of the biggest and perhaps most contentious questions um, around, which I don't think has come up actually very much today, um, around the development of AI is not only privacy, but also the future of work. So what are the implications of the development of artificial intelligence, especially as embedded um, in automation and uh, new robotics um, uh, for workplaces um, in the manufacturing sector, but also in service sectors as well. Uh, so we, think about, we may think about education and training, labor, as well as rules on interfirm relations. So what kinds of rules govern the ways in which firms share or not information, uh, the ways in which mergers and acquisitions can take place, um, what kinds of data sharing can take, uh, uh, is, is facilitated between different firms and so forth, and what are the implications um, then for the development of markets um, in these contexts. So I'm going to suggest, uh, sort of building on this typology, um, a distinction that we can draw. And this distinction is familiar, to, perhaps, to, to many um, from work on the varieties of capitalism, um, uh, probably most famously um, associated with, but not only with, um, uh, Peter Hall and David Soskis, uh, where we can divide um, some, of, some political economies, so some national political economies, especially in the, in the industrialized world, uh, into what they've described as liberal market economies and coordinated market economies. So liberal market economies um, um, as a typology, um, the sort of an ideal typical typology, uh, the best examples of this are the United States, United Kingdom, and uh, Canada. 
Uh, and uh, the argument is that there are that institutions, these, many of these institutions, institutions of finance, of labor, of interform relations, and so forth, um, take particular forms um, in these contexts with important implications um, for the ways in which, for example, technological innovation in domains such as AI uh, go. Uh, so, for example, in finance, um, finance in these places tends to be short-term and market-based. Um, so stock markets um, are primary institutions of finance, for example, and stock markets in our contemporary uh, moment, especially in places like the U.S. Uh, and the U.K., are really driven by short-term profit considerations. Um, so it's all about earnings calls and really um, high churn in many of these contexts. Uh, now, of course, we're talking about AI, and so you may say, but these are early-stage technologies, right? And so um, they rely less, perhaps, on stock markets, though maybe that's where they all want to go at some point, um, but perhaps much more on uh, angel investments and venture capital. Uh, but similarly, in these contexts, there's high pressure and relative short-termism uh, in the angel and VC world, because, of course, um, uh, for anyone in the room who might be a venture capitalist, the most important thing you want to do when you invest in a new firm is to ensure they can scale rapidly um, so that you can resell them um, uh, uh, at uh, the highest uh, profit. So again, even in the context um, of startups, um, this kind of short-termism uh, holds. So these are the one uh, way of thinking about um, financial market institutions uh, in this context. Uh, similarly, you might think about liberal market institutions. Um, so again, in, in liberal market, in liberal market uh, economies, uh, labor markets are characterized by high mobility, so ease of firing and hiring, um, very, very weak employment contracts. Um, and these hold in um, uh, high-tech areas just as much as they hold in low-wage, um, low, relatively low-skill service jobs. Right. Um, so think about the kinds of churn and the labor movement that we see, maybe labor mobility that we see in places like Silicon Valley, for example, um, or in other tech hubs in Boston, in Austin, Texas, and so forth. Right. Um, so very, very high mobility, ease of hiring and firing um, is a characteristic um, of labor markets um, in this context. Uh, similarly, education and training, of course, closely related um, to labor. Uh, what we see in many of these contexts is that the onus um, for investing um, in education and labor really falls on the individual. Right? So uh, this is why we see, for example, um, individuals taking on high levels of debt, for instance, in pursuing um, tertiary education. Right? So the, the, the logic of the system uh, in liberal market economies um, is that the responsibilities for investing in, um, in, uh, uh, in education and training um, really falls uh, on the individual. Uh, and finally, with respect to um, rules on interfirm relations, we see a market-based competition policy. Now, of course, many may say cynically, if you look at the U.S., there is no competition policy because what we see, especially in this context, is the growth of these massive firms. And so we see oligopolistic um, uh, structures dominating uh, these spheres. Uh, but nevertheless, the way in which, um, uh, the logic under which uh, interfirm relations operates um, in liberal market um, context is very much through the market. So we see mergers and acquisitions, for example. We see technology purchases. You see the kinds of exchange, exchanges um, that take place between firms operating through market-like uh, behavior. By contrast, if we're to think about coordinated market economies, uh, uh, and here the, the classic examples would be Germany and Japan, uh, what we see is, is very, very different. So in finance, for example, tends to be much more long-term, tends to be bank-based. 
Um, uh, labor, of course, is radically different. Um, we see um, uh, in both the German um, and in a different way, but similarly in the Japanese context, um, long-term employment contracts. Um, so lifetime employment, for example, in Japan. Um, co-determination in Germany. We see different kinds of, we see, we see radically different uh, modes of industrial relations um, in these contexts. Uh, and these have important outcomes. For example, we see much, more, much lower um, mobility across firms. Education and training in these places um, is done much more through firms. Um, so it's firm-based investments in education and training. So the firm that you work for will invest in your education, will train you um, uh, uh, to be able to use existing technologies as well as new technologies, unlike in uh, the US, UK, Canada, and so forth. Uh, and finally, we see um, uh, very, very different um, rules and norms on inter-firm relations. Uh, we see a much more cooperative system of, um, that manifests, for example, in shared standards. Again, crucially important um, in high technology fields like, uh, like AI, um, as well as technology transfer. Right, so a radically different um, set of arrangements um, that constitute these national political economies uh, across these two uh, sort of ideal typical uh, 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 type, these two ideal typical um, categories of national political economies, um, liberal and coordinated um, markets. Um, and this manifests in really important ways. So to turn back to thinking about labor, for example, and questions about the future of work, um, what we see in the United States, for example, is fear of robots coming. Right, um, uh, and there's a sort of idea that um, it's just a matter of time before most jobs are automated out of existence. There are endless reports um, on this from organizations like McKinsey and, and many others, uh, and it's difficult to pick up um, uh, any tech publication or um, most business um, dailies or certainly weeklies without finding numerous articles in any given week that offer new data, new projections that suggest how um, jobs are being destroyed across a whole range of domains. Uh, now, one view of this is that this is just uh, an outcome of the development of these new technologies, right? As the technologies get better, they will take over jobs. Um, of course, another view suggests that, of course, these technologies aren't deterministic, right? They're embedded in the social and political context from which they emerge, and they can have many outcomes and many manifestations, and it can be utilized in many different ways. And so one example is thinking about collaborative robots, so cobots um, in the Japanese context, where uh, Japan, of course, is the world leader in robotics, um, rather than, um, or in contrast to the United States where this fear of the robots coming, um, in Japan, what we see in many contexts is, in fact, robots that are being developed to work alongside human workers. Right? Um, and of course, we see this in the most classical of contexts um, in an automobile factory um, in uh, Japan. All right, so with that, let me turn um, finally um, to saying something very, very brief about the global political economy, right? So again, we started by suggesting that the development of AI takes place within organizational settings, which are in turn uh, embedded in national political economies, which of course is embedded in our global political economy. So what about the global? Like, how does this matter um, following along the lines that I've been discussing? Well, let me just offer one contemporary case as a, as a very quick example. Um, so we might think about the development of uh, global mobility networks of technological innovation, um, finance, and crucially, control, so managerial control that manifests through the ownership of um, shares, especially preferential shares, uh, both in um, startup firms um, and in established companies in the mobility space um, in the development of ride-hailing platforms and autonomous vehicles. Uh, and so here I'm going to show a graphic which, um, as you can see, is not mine, um, but a graphic which I really like, which offers one way of um, understanding, um, or at least viewing, um, what the global um, uh, uh, ride-hailing space looks like. And of course, ride-hailing and the, de the development of ride-hailing and the development of AVs are deeply intertwined um, uh, in ways that many in the room are, are familiar with. 
Um, and so uh, this perspective really centers um, some of the main uh, ride-hailing firms in the world. But there are other ways in which we could look at this. So, for example, we might center some of the Financial Market Act, the financial services uh, firms uh, instead. But nevertheless, what we see is... Uh, see if this works. Nope. Uh, so what we see is, of course, um, so the ride-hailing firms in black. So Didi is the leading ride-hailing firm in China. Um, as many may, may know, um, Uber used to compete with Didi in China um, up until 2016. Uh, it was a massive loss-making uh, effort by both firms. They both were losing over a billion dollars, um, it's estimated, per year. Uh, and eventually, um, Uber, on one hand, sold out to, but really... Um, uh, uh, did a, a share swap with Didi and exited the market. So we have Didi in China. We have, of course, Uber and Lyft. Um, Ola is the, the large ride-hailing firm in, um, in India, uh, and Grab is a large ride-hailing firm in Southeast Asia, Singapore-based. And so what we see are these networks of um, ownership relations and cross-investments between the ride-hailing firms who are in black, um, sets of um, uh, financial service um, firms and actors in red, uh, the most important of which I would suggest is SoftBank, um, but there are many offers. A SoftBank is a Japanese-based um, fund. Um, and, uh, of course, we also see many of the traditional automakers as well. So especially at the top, we see Toyota, Tata in India, Volvo, Fiat, GM, uh, and so forth. Uh, and then finally, some of the, um, or what we might not think about is the conventional tech firms. Um, so Microsoft, Alibaba, Tencent, Apple, and so forth. And what this graphic really tries to show is a, an interconnection, um, a deep interconnection between these firms, where we can, which we can map using data on cross-investments, but then we can also draw inferences about what this means for technology flows as well. Uh, and so uh, one of the things that this suggests um, is that uh, trying to think about the development of artificial intelligence, certainly in the, auto in the um, autonomous vehicle context, uh, is impossible without thinking about these kinds of global networks and how they flow, how they function, um, not just in terms of the exchange of finance and technology, which network analysis like this or a network view like this can suggest is uh, quite benign and you know, money is just flowing and people are investing in places where they may make money, but rather I would suggest we think about these um, as networks of power and control that might also determine the particular paths that the development of AI might take uh, in each of these places. So with that, I'll summarize um, and conclude. Um, what I've tried to suggest um, today is uh, taking a political economy approach to thinking about ethics in AI um, is about um, uh, thinking about uh, societal transformation. Um, harkens back, of course, to the rise of modern capitalism, but certainly now thinking about it in the emergence um, of AI, Industry 4.0, and so forth. Um, it's crucial to pay attention to questions of power, governance, and institutions. Um, but across all of these, um, it's crucial to think about the moral underpinnings um, of power, of governance, and of institutions. So what sorts of reciprocal, um, what sorts of moral understandings and moral beliefs um, uh, underpin the kinds of relations that we see embedded in different institutions. So why do we have co-determinism uh, in Germany? Why is there this deep idea uh, in Germany um, that there should be, um, that workers, for example, should sit um, uh, at a similar level in boardrooms um, with managers, whereas in the United States there is very much not that belief, for example. Um, why is there the belief, um, for example, in the development of robotics in Japan, uh, that uh, from the beginning, robots should be imagined as working alongside um, human workers rather than as a replacement for workers? And again, what difference does that does, do those um, sort of moral beliefs, those societal understandings, have for the way in which these new technologies are imagined by the researchers um, who are developing them and the firms? What sort of incentives are in place um, for the firms um, that and or other organizations? Um, that are pursuing uh, these kinds of, of developments. Uh, so I'll stop there. Thanks. <laughs>